Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I'm the founder and CEO of Mara Poling. Happy to be with you again this week to discuss a topic that we don't talk about much, but is of interest to everyone that is a listener. And that is, how much can you make? Just how much money can you make investing in multifamily real estate? Well, we're going to go through and take a look at three real world deals from our portfolio and learn just how much did we earn and how we did it. That's this week's topic, and thanks for joining me. If you have any questions, as always, you can email me, pat at morapolling.com. And please swing by the Learning Center at morapolling.com for lots of additional great educational content. That's M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. And with that, let's get into the topic. So how much money can you make doing this? Well, you can make, honestly, as much as you want, and you can lose a lot too. There's risk involved. So what we're going to talk about today is some more realistic, although one of them is kind of an exciting return, some more realistic returns that you can probably see or possibly see, but none of this obviously is guaranteed. We're going to show you three properties from our portfolio that have gone full cycle, and we're going to talk about the returns for each one of those. The, uh, these are real deals. They've gone full cycle. The returns we're talking about are pre-tax. So this is before uh, any tax benefits that were received by the investors or any tax consequences from the sales. And we'll talk about the uh, sales and how those were structured uh, for each. Most importantly, what we are going to talk about is meant to educate about the range of what is possible, not to inform on what you should expect were you to invest with Mara Polling or possibly with other sponsors. Now, other sponsors might tell you this is the number you should see and those numbers might sound like what we're gonna talk about. We are always more conservative when we talk about our targets and we'll talk about those a little bit as well. Uh, but these are three good examples of what actually can happen. So with that, let's take a look at the three of them. A little bit of an overview for you. Uh, so the first property, and these are in no sequence other than just the way they popped out of my head when I was putting the notes together for this week. The first property was a property that was purchased with $6 million of investment. So that's the down payment if you will, the original equity in the deal that covered the cost of the acquisition. And it also covered the cost of all the improvements that were made during the hold period for this particular asset. So $6 million went in and $12 million came out. So six in, 12 out, we made $6 million. $6 million of which some of that came in the form of cash that was distributed along the way during the hold period. And a significant amount of that, the vast majority of it came 
as equity growth that was realized when the sale completed. So pretty good, doubled our money. Now, how long did that take? Because that's an important part of the conversation. If that took seven years, then that's about a 14% average annual return. If we did that in five years, that's 20%, which by the way, 20 is a little closer to what we target. Our target would generally be something in the high teens is where we would like to be. We've underwritten and acquired properties where we were only maybe shooting for 16 or 17%, uh, being ultra conservative in that scenario. 20% uh, is about the highest we've ever underwritten an asset for uh, at the acquisition portion of the hold period. So uh, if you did that, if you doubled the money in five years, that'd be 20%. If you doubled it in four years, 25%, three years, it'd be 33%. If you doubled it in two years, it'd be 50%. This property took 18 months to double. So 18 months to go from 6 million to 12 million, it's a 67% return. And we'll talk in a minute here about how that happened. This is obviously an extraordinary return, not anything at all like what anyone should expect. And I don't think just with more polling, but I think with any sponsor, no one out there is targeting and counting on and designing to double money in 18 months, at least no one that I'm aware of in this particular space. So rather extraordinary, we'll talk about the events that made that happen. All right, the second property we're gonna talk about was a smaller property. It had a $2 million investment. So $2 million went in for the same type of things that I just described, the original equity, the closing costs, the improvements and the like. And what came out of that asset was $3.1 million. So a $1.1 million gain. Again, some of that coming from cash that was distributed during the hold period and a pretty good chunk of it from the equity growth. So we're looking at a $1.1 million gain on a $2 million investment. So 55% in terms of the total return spread over how many years? Well, it was just a little over two years. So about a 24% return. Now, both of these assets, the first one and the second one that I'm describing, traded much more rapidly than what we typically would underwrite an asset for. We would typically target somewhere around year five. And we do that for a couple of reasons. One is if we have met our targets by year five, we've got a decent amount of lazy equity built up and we'd like to free that equity up and get it working for us. We've also taken fairly full advantage of the tax scenario for that asset and moving out of it and into a new asset gives us some fresh tax benefits to work with. So typically five years is what we would be thinking of. These assets both sold faster than five years. And the reason for that was we received offers for those assets that were significantly higher than what we had forecasted the asset would be worth at that time. Meaning we had the lazy equity at 18 months or 27 months that we thought we were gonna have at year four or five or six or even year seven in the instance of the first asset. And so from that standpoint, we had lots of lazy equity 
because of some of the uh, items in the tax code currently where there's some ability to accelerate depreciation into the first year from the first five years, the tax benefits have already been taken on these assets as well. So it made a lot of sense to take a serious look at possibly trading those assets, and that's ultimately what we did. All right, so the third one we're going to look at, this is an asset that we put $4.2 million in. So again, 4.2 for the original equity, the cost of closing, and capital improvements. On this particular asset, we did not start out putting 4.2 million in. We were not going to invest that much, but over time, we identified additional needs and opportunities that caused us to put additional capital in, raising our total investment to $4.2 million. Now, on the original investment, we expected to make something in the high teens, an 18 or 19% return on average every year, but on maybe about $3 million of investment. So over the course of five years, we would have gotten close to doubling, but not quite. So we'd have made around $3 million, maybe a little bit less. This asset, 4.2 million went in, and $8 million came out. Again, some of that $8 million in cash, most of it in equity growth. Uh, that $8 million means we came out with $3.8 million. So we made an extra $800,000 for having put an extra million dollars in, a very good return. And that was the reason we made the decision to put the additional capital in and continue with the improvements. So this property, was held about four years, a little over four years, and made 22, almost 23%. That is much more typical of what we would expect to see, still higher than what we would underwrite, but much more typical of what we think an asset in the multifamily space can return. All right, so let's talk a little bit about how we made that money at each of those assets. Um, you may have heard an adage, a uh, saying that goes something like this. Well, you make your money when you buy. And if you've heard that, then you've probably heard someone say, I think you make your money when you sell. Well, I think both of those are correct. And there's one more, which is you make money by operating the asset well. You should make money throughout the entirety of the hold period. We ought to buy assets. Uh, intelligently so that we make some money when we purchase them. We should operate them and improve them intelligently so that we make money during that phase. And we should sell them well so that we make money when we sell. And if we do that, we're in a good position to have a very nice return. So all three of these assets were purchased below market. Uh, two of them were off market deals. They were not on the market for sale, one was. Each of them we purchased for what we believed was a fair price, but structured the acquisitions in such a way that the sellers found value in offering them to us and ultimately agreeing to a price that was less than what they probably would have received had they gone through a full marketing process. Now you might say, well, how do you do that? Well, there's a couple ways you do that. One, we've developed, and it's important for anyone that you work with to 
have this type of reputation. We've developed a reputation for being able to get deals closed. Sellers want to sell for the most money that they can, but they only get that money if the deal closes. So it doesn't do a seller any good to go under contract with someone that's paying a very high price, but isn't gonna get the deal actually done. And if you have a track record of getting deals closed, you are more likely to win when we get into a competitive environment. Remember, one of these acquisitions was actually an on-market transaction. Another reason that you can get assets below market is the ability to close quickly. Having cash in your pocket, which we almost always do, it's very, very rare that we don't have 100% of the capital lined up for an acquisition when we make an offer. Having the cash in hand, again, increases the likelihood of closing the deal and puts the seller in a more positive position to accept us. So all three bought below market. All three of the assets had value add opportunities that varied. The asset that had the highest return, the 67% return, actually had the largest amount of value add opportunity and we took very little advantage of it and i'll say more about that in a moment the other two assets had you know pretty what we would describe as standard value add opportunities little dated interiors an opportunity to go in and clean them up spruce them up some flooring some appliances some paint uh, not necessarily cabinets, although occasionally cabinets, if they were in pretty bad shape, uh, and some really solid rent movement from making those improvements. But in addition to that, all three of the properties had the ability to move the classic rents, the existing rents. So all three assets were below market in terms of their rents. So if the Rents at that asset were $800, the market might have been 900 or 950. And so there was money to be made simply managing the property so that we could capture all of what was available for the existing quality of the units. In particular, at the asset that had the greatest growth, that was the scenario. And so moving the rents to market and ultimately setting the market, moving to the point where we were leading some of that put us in a position where we, we realized significant gains and didn't have to put additional capital in, which allowed us to stay with that original $6 million investment. There's another thing that that did about leaving some meat on the bone that I'll talk about in a few minutes. When you've got the ability to move classic rents, you can get a very solid return on investment because while you may only be getting an incremental amount, a modest amount of NOI growth, you're essentially getting that for zero dollars invested, zero incremental dollars invested. And that allows you to boost your return significantly. As I said, these are all full cycle assets. So each one of them has gone through the exit process. So when it comes time to exit, how did we do that? Well, all three exited on market or pre-market. On market meaning we actually got the asset out there and had an offering memorandum and all the other pretty stuff that went with it and went through that process. When you're preparing the offering memorandum and getting ready to go to market, 
you're in a pre-market phase. And that's very typical of when an investor might approach someone and say, I'd like that, I like your asset, uh, don't waste your time going to market, I'll pay you what it's worth today. Uh, and that is what happened in two of these instances. One of the properties did go all the way through the full market process. Part of what makes an asset attractive that allows you to make money at the sale, remember we want, want to make money when we buy, make money when we operate, make money when we sell. Part of what makes it valuable and helps you make money when you sell is having more buyers. The more buyers that you can have that are seriously interested, the better the value we're going to see. Now, if we've got an asset that we have fully improved, we've moved all the rents to market, it's just perfect. There are buyers for that asset. But there's not as many buyers as there would be if the asset had some room for it to improve, for it to grow, if it had some meat on the bone for the next person. Because in addition to those investors that want a momentum asset, an asset that's simply going to operate, there are lots of investors that look like Mara Poling, that want a value-add investment, that want an investment that they can improve. And so if we can put an asset in a position where we've made our money and there is still opportunity, then we're going to see a very solid exit price. The assets that we're talking about here, that's exactly the case. As I mentioned, on the asset that had the highest return, we did relatively no or very small amounts of interior improvements. So all of the units, more or less, are available to have a full upgrade done and the rent movement that would go with those. Why didn't we do it? Well, we made our money. We actually made our money and then some. So we'd rather make the money on the sale then hold on to it and tie that capital up for more years. Let's sell it to somebody else, let them make that money, but they're gonna pay us for that opportunity. And that's what we saw at that particular asset. At asset number two, the one that made in the mid twenties kind of return, we had only improved about 30% of the asset. And there's where we stopped. Again, we left some good meat on the bone, and what's nice when you can improve some of the asset is a buyer doesn't have to go look at comps to figure out what they could do for rents. They can actually look at the rent roll and see what an improved unit is getting in the market because we have improved units that they can look at. And then the third asset did have more improvements done but I describe them as fairly basic improvements. And so there's another tier of improvements available. And the asset had a lot of deferred maintenance that was now fully taken care of. So a pristine asset that really had been a B operated as a C, but now is a very solid B. And that puts it in a very good position when it comes time to exit. You also wanna be in a market that's a growth market. Now, how do you do that when it's time to sell? We have no control over what's going on in the submarket that we're in. And that's true at that point in time, but we did have some impact on it 
when we bought the asset. And that's the reason why we want to buy in markets that are growing today, and that's important. It's equally, if not more important, that the asset is in a market that is going to continue to grow, that in five years, when it's time for us to exit, the market will still be growing. And therefore, the buyers we attract will be looking at a growing market looking at an asset with meat on the bone, with opportunities to improve, and they'll be more than happy to pay us a fair price for that asset. Now, I mentioned that all of these returns, the 22% and the 24, 25% and the 67%, all of those were pre-tax numbers, and that's true. And every one of these assets was sold via a 1031 meaning we did a sale exchange. And the proceeds from those assets, from those sales, went into new assets that generated similar types of returns, but because of the incremental leverage effectively by rolling in the gain, much higher returns. I'll give you one example. The asset that we sold for uh, 3.1 million of uh, proceeds, so a 24% return, that asset, those dollars were rolled into a new asset that has been generating about 8% cash on the cash that was invested. So pretty reasonable in terms of our targets. But we didn't invest all the cash because some of that cash is the $1.1 million gain that came out of that asset. And when you factor that in, it looks a little more like a 12% cash return. And so the gain on these assets, on a first generation asset, these were all first generation assets, can put you in a position to have significantly higher returns on a second generation asset by virtue of using a 1031 and deferring that tax exposure. Now, someday the tax will be due, right? Someday we'll sell the final asset in the chain, and it'll be time to pay the tax. But we're talking many years from now with dollars that are worth less than they are today, and we've been able to use those tax dollars in the intervening years to help boost our returns. So I hope this gives you some idea of what's possible. Again, none of that's guaranteed. If you called me and said, Pat, this sounds really great, we'd love to talk about maybe putting some money into your fund, I'm not ever gonna mention a return that sounds like these. We're gonna talk about cash in that seven to 8% range. We're gonna talk about a total return in the high teens or so. And if we ever get an opportunity to achieve numbers like this, fantastic, that's good for us. But we're never gonna expect those from the get-go. We're gonna buy quality assets. We're gonna manage them well, buy them well, sell them well. And if we do all that, we've got an opportunity to achieve these kinds of returns. So just something I'd encourage you to keep in mind, whether you end up wanting to work with us or a firm like us, or whether you're doing your own work, be realistic in terms of what you might ultimately see. And if you do good work along the way, there's a chance that you'll see these kinds of returns. I hope you found this week's session valuable. If you have questions, shoot me an email pat at marapolling.com. And please join me next week for another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing 
presented by Marlboro.